Hey, it's Martine. So just a heads up that today's show brings us on the ground in Ukraine, and we're going to hear about some pretty graphic scenes of war. So just be thoughtful about when and with whom you listen. Louisa Lovelock has been reporting from Bucha, a suburb just outside the capital, Kiev. That's one of the cities where we've been hearing about atrocities committed by Russian troops. And that's where we're going to start. Here's Louisa. I'm standing in a clearing in the Ukrainian town of Bucha, and we're here because police have identified a body. Now, this clearing, this bit of woodland was used by the Russians as a base. So we think you can see the ammunition crates, you can see the uniform, um, and in and amongst the bottles of alcohol and the other detritus that they have left behind is the body of a man. Um, We don't know who he is. No one has officially come to check the body yet, so, you know, we don't have any sort of prosecutor's or coroner's report, but he looks as if he may have died violently. His limbs are at quite odd angles, and he certainly has been left. This body was one of hundreds that Post reporters counted over the course of a week in Bucha. Louisa says the actual number of people killed is much higher. Louisa and our Post colleagues wanted to find out everything they could about who this man was and what happened to him. They learned his name was Ivan, and he had a wife who is still alive. Her name is Yulia. Ivan and Yulia had a love story on this street called Yablinska Street. Apple Tree Street. Ivan had moved to Butcher about 10 years prior. He'd moved into Yulia's building and by all accounts had a pretty happy life. They had a young daughter, Sasha, who was seven. But their life was completely upended when the Russians came in, when the Russians first invaded Ukraine on February 24th. And then when at the beginning of March, they came into Butcher. The Russians came in when both Ivan and Yulia were at work, so they were separated, both of them sheltering in their respective basements. And Ivan one day walked out of his basement completely incensed and agitated, seemingly trying to find Yulia, and he never came back. The exact details of Yvonne's death are still a mystery. And Louisa says that is something that she hears over and over again, that the people left behind may just never know exactly what happened to their loved ones. I, what, what did Yulia tell you about that? What was what has her life been like since since she learned that he died? The most striking thing that Yulia said about this period is how her daughter had reacted. Because every day that Ivan was missing, the daughter Sasha was asking, you know, where's daddy? Where's he gone? And Yulia would say to her, her, listen, we don't know where he's gone, but he's probably out there. He's probably helping children or maybe he's fighting for the army and he's fighting for children. And so on the day that Yulia walked back into the house, having found Ivan's body, Sasha apparently just looked at her and she knew. And the words she used were, did you lie to me? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 27th. Today, our war correspondent, Louisa Lovelock, takes us to the front lines in Ukraine. Plus, we talk about why President Biden is finally nominating a new ambassador to the country after years without one. 
Earlier this month, Russian armed forces completed their withdrawal of Kyiv and the surrounding areas. That allowed journalists, aid workers, and war crime investigators to finally enter. What they found was evidence of atrocities. And to be clear, we don't know how many more Buchas there are. Well, I've been in Ukraine for about three weeks now. And from the very first day, we found ourselves reporting in a suburb of Kyiv called Bucha. Bucha was a place that was once really quite an aspirational place to live. It's roughly 20 miles outside of Kyiv. It was the sort of place that families wanted to move to, young couples wanted to move to. It's frankly beautiful. But these days, the name of the town has become a byword for what happened here in the weeks after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what do we know now about what happened there? Well, international investigators who have been in the country are investigating whether war crimes took place in that town. And certainly from the reporting that we have done, it it certainly looks very likely. In my week walking around the town, we just walked around a very small area of it. We documented 208 bodies, some of them in mass graves, some of them still out there on the sidewalk. Wow. In two blocks alone, we saw 31 bodies. We saw bodies that had been beheaded with their their skulls sort of ritualistically burnt. We saw what appeared to be the aftermath of sexual abuse. And really, the litany of crimes that we saw there were unlike anything that I have personally seen. I've been doing this job for nine years. Um, It's very unusual to, to walk into a scene where the evidence is still fresh on the ground like that. And it was truly incredibly shocking. You sent us a recording of a man who was standing over a mass grave looking for one of his relatives. Can you um, can you tell me about that moment? Well, this mass grave was right outside a church inside Bucha. It had dozens of civilian bodies in it, and this was the moment that the investigators were, were exhuming the bodies. They were pulling them out one by one with a sort of makeshift crane. They were putting the bodies on a door to sort of wedge them out of the ground. And this man had turned up because he hoped his relative was there. A lot of people in Bucha were stuck in basements for the whole of the Russian occupation because the shelling outside was so bad that they couldn't get outside. But they'd heard about this grave. And when people didn't come home, when people went missing, they hoped their relatives would be there. And this man was one of several people we met there who had turned up just hoping upon hope that this was the final resting place for someone who had gone missing. And how did that turn out or how long did he stay trying to see if if one of his relatives would be exhumed? He was there for most of the day um, with with several other relatives. They thought he was there. uh, They weren't sure. And they really had a dilemma. You know, they they wanted to know what had happened to him. And part of them wanted him to be there even though that would confirm that he had died because it would give closure. It would stop them agonizing and wondering where he was. But of course, the other part of them, they were saying, really, really hope that, that it wasn't him, that he wasn't there, that he might walk through the door tomorrow. But it certainly seemed that they were losing hope and that 
They just wanted desperately to confirm that this is where he was so they could work out how to pick up the pieces of their lives. Louisa, you know, when we first heard some of the information that we knew early on about what transpired in Bucha, I mean, it was awful. But these details that you're sharing, the details that have been coming out as part of investigations in the week since, I mean, they're truly horrific. What do we know about why this happened? Why Russian troops did this and did this in this town? Well, Bucha is one of many strategic locations for Russian forces as they were trying to take the capital, Kiev. It seems that they thought that it would be a pretty quick and easy assault on the capital, that they would move in within days or perhaps weeks. And that simply didn't happen. In some of the suburbs, there was heavy, there was a lot of heavy shelling and they really destroyed the places from above. But in the case of Bucha, they moved in and what was meant to likely be a short-lived occupation just turned out to be a lot longer. The part of Bucha that we were walking around was particularly strategic. It contained a lot of open land that the Russians were using to shell other parts of of the Kiev suburbs. So it was certainly a location they really needed to hold. And you get different stories about the behaviors of different units. It, It certainly seems to be the case that the units stationed on this street were particularly abusive. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? Like, just because they're there for, I mean, some of this stuff feels like, I don't know, like it doesn't, just because they were stuck there for longer than they anticipated, like, how does that justify, I mean, not even justify, but like explain some of this stuff? So when you talk to residents who were there, you you hear about different units, different waves of soldiers. Yulia, the woman who we wrote about, she was stuck in a basement for a long time, and she says that the first time the soldiers came down, they were fairly good-natured within reason. They brought food, they brought water, they treated them relatively well. But as battlefield losses were mounting outside the, the basement, the abuses and the frustration started to mount. Day by day, the soldiers who came in would be ruder, more clipped. They would start withholding food, withholding water. And over time, mm. it turns out that at the same time, as frustration grew, the atrocities outside were growing as well. You know, Louisa, at the beginning of the war, I think that there was a narrative that Russian troops were also in some ways a victim of Putin's war, that many of them were surprised by how far into Ukraine they were expected to go, that they felt they weren't prepared for this kind of invasion. And I wonder how this information of what happened in Bucha is changing that narrative of how we should understand the Russian military and troops on the ground in this situation. Well, it's certainly the case that the Russian soldiers who we have heard about, by and large, were not well armed, were not well sort of kitted out for this. They didn't turn up with much food. In fact, they they looted a lot of what they were eating. They looted a lot of the alcohol that they were drinking and the bottles frankly, are are everywhere inside their bases. But Hmm. one thing that is very striking when you speak to people who interacted with them is that a lot of them seem to genuinely believe that they were there on some level to to rescue the Ukrainians. There is a lot of propaganda in Russia which has described the Ukrainian leadership as, as fascists, as Nazis. And time and time again, you hear testimony that when the Russians came into the basement, they would say, listen, we're here to save you. 
And when you hear what they were saying to to men before they killed them, it's very much the same as this. They they genuinely seem to have believed that these people on some level had committed some sort of crime or had some sort of ideology that in their logic, on their determination, would have merited death. Now, the justifications provided were entirely false and there is absolutely no evidence that anyone in Bucha had any link to any of these things, but the men committing the atrocities certainly seem to have believed it. And has Russia responded to these reports in Bucha and, and allegations that they have committed war crimes? Russia has responded. Putin has, in fact, recently awarded a medal to members of the 84th Motorized Brigade. Um, this is one of the brigades we actually wrote about who who committed abuses on Yablinska Street, according to investigators. Mm-hmm. He congratulated the men on, on their sort of heroic patriotic actions. And again, this sort of conformed to what is effectively a propaganda narrative that far from committing war crimes, these men are doing something good for the, the strength of the Russian nation. Hmm. How do you make sense of all this violence? Louisa, you said that you've seen things in Bucha that you haven't seen in other war zones. And when you think about the people that you've spoken with, how do you, how are you kind of processing that? I mean, I think it's very difficult. As I say, having the job that I have, I I have unfortunately seen many times when, you know, man has done bad thing to man. But in this case, the thing that has been the most shocking to me really has been the the sadism, you know. Um, when you walk down a path not knowing what you're going to find and then you realize that there are two bodies lying out there. One of them is beheaded. The head has been burnt and laid at the man's feet. You can see his hair. Mm. And he was an old man. Um, I don't have an explanation for that. I've thought a lot about it. Um, it would have been an incredibly intimate act. Um, they would have had to have been carried out over quite a long period of time. Um, and the thing that I just keep wondering is, you know, did these men know that they were being marched to their deaths and what happened to them and why? And for the people who live in Bucha, who, I don't know, aren't planning to leave Bucha, like, what is their future here? How are they even beginning to think about carrying on with life in a place that has seen such awful things? Well, when you ask this question of residents, a lot of them effectively say, listen, we don't know because we haven't quite come to terms with what happened yet. But you know, this has been an interesting weekend because this has been the Easter weekend here. It's also a time when we're seeing Passover. We're also seeing it's Ramadan. You know, every single major religion in this country is having a religious period at this stage. And certainly looking at the church services. They were incredibly full of emotion. And I think a lot of people at this time have fallen back on religion because it is one of the only things that allows them to try and make sense of what to them feels like a senseless situation. (laughs) 
After the break, we talk about Mariupol, that support city that President Vladimir Putin claims Russia has already taken. But we're talking to Louisa about the truth of what's happening there, and we hear from some of the people who've escaped. We'll be right back. So, Luisa, we've been talking about Bucha and what you saw there while you were reporting, but now you're currently in the far east of the country where fighting has intensified and you've been witnessing people escape from another city, Mariupol. So what do we know about what the fighting has looked like there and what it's been like for people who live there? As reporters, it has been very difficult to report on the front lines of this war, particularly because the Ukrainian authorities have restricted us from reporting certain details. Indeed, it's illegal to sometimes report where a strike lands or what happens until the military confirm it. But what we do know is that there has been intense aerial bombardment over Mariupol. I've spent my day at a reception centre where people have been evacuated from the town to the centre, to the town of Zaporizhia. And the stories we're getting really are of blanket bombardment through the day of the town. Did anyone you know get injured or killed? The neighbouring building was hit with the aviation bomb. We just saw dead bodies flying out the windows after the explosion. It was our neighbours, little children, everyone who we knew. One of the things that I heard a woman saying on the phone to her relative today when she got out and for the first time managed to speak to someone because they have no electricity, they have no way of charging their phones. She was just saying, it's gone, it's all gone, our city is destroyed, it's never coming back. Oh my gosh. I can imagine... People in this moment are probably trying to leave. But what we've heard over and over again throughout the course of this conflict is that when humanitarian corridors are negotiated or established, that Russia sometimes ignores those or bombs places where people are supposed to be given free passage to evacuate. What do we know about humanitarian corridors right now and for people who are trying to leave Mariupol? Well, the Mariupol humanitarian corridor is certainly the one that I think all night all eyes are on diplomatically right now. The United Nations is ready to fully mobilize its human and logistical resources to help save lives in Mariupol. My proposal is for a coordinated work of the United Nations, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and the Ukraine and Russian Federation forces to enable the safe evacuation of those civilians who want to leave both inside the Azovstal plan and in the city, in any direction they choose, and to deliver the humanitarian aid required. You currently have several thousand people holed up in a steelworks in the centre of Mariupol. A lot of the people there are fighters, but a lot of them are civilians, a lot of them are children. The Russians have said that a humanitarian corridor is open, People are free to leave when they want. But as someone who's been standing at that evacuation point for days, I can tell you that is not the case. We've seen three buses in total. We've seen some private vehicles. But apart from that, no one has been able to leave the city. 
So, Louisa, um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said that the events in Mariupol are probably even worse than in Bucha, but there's just no way of knowing right now. He was actually in Kyiv over the weekend along with Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. So tell us a little bit more about that. Why were they there and what were they trying to achieve? Well, this high-level U.S. visit, which involved Secretary of State Antony Blinken with having a meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, was basically the resumption of the embassy's operations there. It's been a number of years since they've had that. And the visit was really a sign that the U.S. is doubling down on its support for Ukraine. The bottom line uh, is this. Uh, We don't know how the rest of this war will unfold, but we do know that a sovereign, independent Ukraine will be around a lot longer than Vladimir Putin's on the scene. And our support for Ukraine going forward uh, will continue. It will continue until we see final success. They're saying they're going to provide $713 million in foreign military financing. And they're joining a dozen other nations in purchasing and replenishing weapons to be given to the Ukrainian forces. You know, Secretary of State Blinken said that, quote, Russia is failing. Russia is failing. Ukraine is succeeding. Russia has sought as its principal aim to totally subjugate Ukraine, to take away its sovereignty, to take away its independence. Do you think that's true? I think it very much depends on what we understand Russia's initial goals to have been. Of course, in the early weeks, the all indications suggested they wanted to take Kyiv, and that is a, a goal they've had to step away from. Now, how serious they were in the pronouncements on that are another question. I think it's very hard to tell without looking inside the mind of Vladimir Putin. But they're certainly succeeding in some areas. They, If they take the port city of Mariupol, for example, where some of the mm. fiercest fighting to date has taken place, they would actually for the first time be able to form an unbroken land corridor between the eastern Donbass region, which borders Russia, to the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia annexed in 2014. So even if they don't achieve these sort of grand territorial gains that perhaps they were hoping to make in the first case. Hmm. They don't lose in many ways. They do still take very important strategic territory. And while, of course, US officials don't want to give them credit for any of this military effort, they are still making gains. So tell me about how the Biden administration is renewing diplomatic activity in Ukraine. Well, the announcement this week that the Biden administration is nominating Bridget Brink as the ambassador to Ukraine is really intended to fill a diplomatic void that has been there for three years. It's been three years since President Trump unceremoniously removed Marie Yovanovitch from the position in 2019. And that was a move that was heavily scrutinized during his first impeachment inquiry. Brink is the US ambassador to Slovakia, and she really is a career diplomat. She has had a foreign service career, which spans more than 26 years. And she really has worked very deeply and longstandingly on Eastern Europe. So this really is a doubling down of the U.S. on diplomatic ties, making very clear that they fulsomely back Ukraine during this war. So thinking about the things that you have seen in Bucha, the reports that we've heard from Mariupol um, and other cities and towns that have suffered in similar ways, how does that impact what the end of this war could look like and what President Zelensky would be willing to negotiate for? Well, I think the more the bloodshed continues in some ways, the harder it gets for Zelensky to back down. 
at the beginning of this war, I think a lot of people thought that that he would, right? That he would step away from certain things, from membership of NATO, from membership of the European Union, and that ultimately he would do what was needed to stop the fighting. He has not done that. The Ukrainian forces have been much stronger on the ground than we thought. And so ultimately, he's going to have to come up with some sort of compromise that maybe does sacrifice parts of the East, but which holds very, very strong on the rest with vast diplomatic support from much of the Western world. The problem, of course, even after a peace treaty is signed, if we can hope that one day it will be, it's hard to see how how these countries can, can live side by side. I mean, they, they will have to, but the memories of, of what happened and the memories of the blood that has been spilt will be incredibly long-lasting, incredibly um, corrosive. And I think it's going to be a long time before either country picks up the pieces. Louisa, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Louisa Lovelock is a foreign correspondent for The Post. Serhii Morganov and Eugene Lakatosh also contributed reporting. This story was produced by Lexi Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>